You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. You can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers, my listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus. And today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to recording. It is a, an extremely fascinating topic. It's one, of those, it's one of those rabbit holes when you first read about it or first see it, right? I'm sure when you see the, the title even of this episode. It is, it's very attention grabbing. I mean, this is, well, this is just an established fact, right? Nuclear weapons and how we should be so afraid of them. And this is, as we're going to explore in this essay, yet another masterful tool that these people have used, uh, you know, the regime that it is, to inculcate fear into society. Now, if the idea of governments working together to uh, attack and keep their people in a state of fear, then I guess you must have been asleep during 2020 and were not witness to what happened with this whole COVID pandemic, this entire scheme. Uh, you know, again, just one in a, a very long laundry list of psychological operations and mass rituals. And so this is a topic that I've explored, uh, you know, in several of my essays. And so the Coincidence Zone series that this essay is going to be, uh, you know, as a part of is really an exploration of all of these topics. The first book that I read that really exposed me to this idea was uh, S.K. Bain's Nine, The Most Dangerous Book in the World, 9-11 as a Mass Ritual. and. On its face, right, it seems, well, this is just, what a ridiculous notion, right? That somehow these entities, these forces could manipulate and collate and bring all these disparate coincidences, right, together. But as we will explore, and as I've demonstrated in numerous essays now, uh, we are beyond the realm of coincidence. And so when you see dates of ritual significance, when you continue to see numerology of ritual and occult significance, and it's not just, oh, hey, we found numbers and we're trying to fit things. There are very, very specific invocations to specific deities. And this is for the occult, for the, the magic practitioner. These are intentional. So by increasing the amount of ritualistic invocations and symbolic invocations to whatever deity that they are trying to manifest during this ritual, whatever forces, whatever energies they are trying to unleash, uh, you will see specific invocations in regards to the ritual that's being conducted. Now, the occultists are very upfront in why they do these things and the purpose behind them. So yeah, these are not my opinions on why these mass rituals are conducted. These are the opinions of prolific occultists like Aleister Crowley, who has this to say on the subject. Quote, There is a single main definition of the object of all magical ritual. It is the uniting of the microcosm, humanity, with the macrocosm, the universe. The supreme and complete ritual is therefore the invocation of the holy guardian angel, that would be Lucifer, to them, or in the language of mysticism, union with God. There are three main methods of invoking any deity, or demon in this case. The first method consists of devotion to that deity, and being mainly mystical in character. The second method is the straightforward ceremonial invocation. It is the method which was usually employed in the Middle Ages. Its advantage is its directness, 
at disadvantage its crudity. The Goetia gives clear instruction on this method, and so do many other rituals, white and black. The third method is the dramatic, perhaps the most attractive of all. Certainly, it is so to the artist's temperament, for it appeals to his imagination through his aesthetic sense. Its disadvantage lies principally in the difficulty of its performance by a single person, but it has the sanction of the highest antiquity and is probably the most useful for the foundation of a religion. And so, that is from Lieber 4, Chapter 1, The Principles of Ritual. And now, as Aleister Crowley has, you know, laid it out for us, the dramatic ritual is the most potent of all rituals. And by getting people to unwittingly join in the dramatic ritual, you exponentially increase the amount of occult power that is harnessed. Now, this is what they believe, right? Is there a certain level of spiritual forces that are being unleashed and harnessed in these rituals? Absolutely. But really, what it comes down to is that mass rituals, by their very definition, are a psychological operation. At its most fundamental level, magic is harnessing forces to implant and to force your will upon the universe, right? The micro the macrocosm. And so, by harnessing these forces, by unleashing these mass rituals upon humanity, with just, it's really a, uh, it's really staggering, honestly, how frequently these mass rituals have been unleashed upon humanity. And the nuclear weapons race, the so-called terror of nuclear Armageddon, uh, this might be their most potent one. It's really hard to say, right? There, there are so many that we could point to. Uh, the moon landing, the JFK assassination, you know, 9-11. For something a little bit more recent, we have the Laihana wildfires, replete in occult symbolism. We have things like East Palestine. You might not think that would be a mass occult ritual, but I assure you, readers, uh, this is one of the essays that really, the East Palestine one, that was, that's when I really started to see the patterns here, right? You can see the patterns, and you can see the consistent thread of how, whether it be ritual dates of significance, cult dates, pagan dates, whether it be the repeated symbolism, there is an unmistakable pattern that once you identify some of these factors, you can start to look through our history. And you can start to see these mass events and these mass rituals for what they are. And so, the exploration of the hoax of nuclear weapons, I, you know, for my, my research on this topic, I usually like to start by talking about some of the books I use, but today we're going to use some of the videos, right? Because the videos in this case are very important. Uh, that is the primary method through which these, these concepts have been incepted into our collective consciousness. And so, it is through the videos, right, it's through movies and television, that the idea the specter of nuclear Armageddon has become this ever-present threat. There's a very small, very, very small number of people who have actually seen an explosion that they would think is a, a nuclear bomb. And now, as we will explore, and as some of these uh, documentaries that I have attached to this essay, the part one of the uh, Coincident Zone Atomic Edition, they are very important for establishing the framework of where we're going to go with the next essays and the next pieces in this series. And so, the first video I have up here is the Nuclear Hoax uh, by the Truman Channel on YouTube, a uh, a, a under an hour documentary, but explores a lot of the the footage fakery that is going on right now. After having CGI, after having eighty years of manipulating film and footage, the layman has become a lot more adept at noticing some of these. Uh, it's called paste ups, right? Or you know, essentially like an older version of photoshopping. And so we have a lot of that in the nuclear footage that has been given to the public. And so, and that's a huge, that leads into our, you know, our second documentary here, 
a top-secret military film studio in Hollywood. Look out Mountain Exposed by Underground Knowledge, another channel on YouTube. And so there's another great documentary exposing the Lookout Mountain studios in California. And that would be in Laurel Canyon. And so every single piece of footage that the American populace has ever seen in regards to nuclear bombs and the testing has gone through Lookout Mountain. And this is an extremely important military facility. It is, it has really its own very sordid history, its own history with the Central Intelligence Agency and other operations that were being run out of Laurel Canyon in California during the 60s. And so a great deal of the counterculture movement, of the hippie movement, it was not an organic thing. This was entirely curated and created by the U.S. government. I mean, as I have talked about in you know, the uh, Black Ops and Black Magic series, the U.S. government created LSD. They funded the creation of it. They bought the entire world supply, and then they disseminated it. There's no escaping this fact. I mean, these are all the U.S. government will freely admit to all these things, and a lot of people, even not within the government, part of the hippie movement, will freely admit all these things. And so there is no counterculture, really, without the CIA. And uh, Dave McGowan's book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream, it really explores this topic in a much more in-depth way. And so like all of these, you know, conspiracy quote unquote topics, this is a this is a spider web of information. And so you will see names, places, people that will continually pop up in our little drama here. And so Lookout Mountain plays a huge role in not just perpetuating the counterculture movement of the nineteen sixties, but also uh, even to this day, you know, the nuclear hoax that still plagues our people. Next up, the other book here, we have The Power of Ritual and Prehistory by Dr. Brian Hayden. And now, this is a very fascinating book. You might think, well, what does this have to do with, <laughs> what does this have to do with mass rituals, right? Well, well, it has a lot to do with mass rituals. So the rituals have been used to inculcate fear into the populace, have been used by the elites of societies to shape our attitudes, our behaviors, keep people in line. It has been used by the elites for millennia. And there is a lot of archaeological evidence that explores this. There is a lot of you know, anthropological exploration of this topic. And so it's somewhat, I, I will admit, it's somewhat of a dry book. It's an academic book. You know, it's not a not something you sit down and read for for pleasure or for fun, but if you are interested in these topics and you're interested in the true history of mass rituals and exploring these things, then the power of ritual and prehistory kind of lays out the framework of how we even got to this point in the modern era, right? This didn't just spring out of nowhere. This is a, a long-running thread. And so these two books are going to show up in uh, several of the essays here, so I'm just going to cover them now. Uh, and uh, these are really the books... You know, the gold standard as far as exploration of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki myth. And so the first one is Hiroshima Revisited, the evidence that napalm and mustard gas helped fake the atomic bombings by Dr. Michael Palmer. Now, we're going to go more in depth into Mr. Palmer's research, or excuse me, Dr. Palmer's research uh, in part two of this essay. So I don't want to, you know, explore the book and in, in all of its things in its totality. But this is a, again... An academic work, meticulously cited, hundreds of citations, going into the source documents, the uh, medical reports that we have from the scene, and you know, even released FOIA documents that have come out later, and reconciling the information that we have with the stories and the fables of nuclear weapons, well, they just don't match up. They don't match up, right? And so... Uh, Dr. Palmer focuses mainly on Hiroshima, but it also, all of these things that are talked about also apply to Nagasaki as well. And while he does not, he mentions 
the uh, the second book here, uh, Death Object, Exploding the Nuclear Weapons Hoax by Dr. Akio Nakatani. Now, Dr. Palmer mentions this book in his book. He does not really deconstruct the myth of nuclear weapons and why this is really even an impossibility. Um, and so he mainly focuses on that the fact that Hiroshima was absolutely staged and the death and destruction that has been attributed to nuclear weapons, quote-unquote, is all explainable by napalm and mustard gas. And so the book, you know, Hiroshima Revisited, I highly recommend. Now, for the other book mentioned here, A Death Object uh, by Dr. Akio Nakatani, uh, this really explores the physics behind nuclear weapons in the first place. And so it is... It's really quite astounding, honestly. It's really quite astounding when you pour into the actual physics, the, the mechanics of how nuclear weapons were even supposed to work. It is, and it's really staggering how long this myth has been perpetrated against humanity. And so, you know, we're in the unfortunate position, as, as Dr. Nakatani uh, notes in his book, is that the U.S. government has made reproducing any kind of device of this nature, a, a huge felony, right? You're going to spend, you're going to spend time in jail for a very long time and even reproducing technical documents that could explain how this would happen is illegal. And so if you wanted to replicate, if you wanted to somehow try and create this on your own to, you know, like real science, try and do the thing by yourself, you would spend, first of all, you wouldn't be able to do it. And then you would spend a bunch of time in jail. <laughs> and so it's, it's a very, very fascinating book. Very, very fascinating book. And, and one that, you know, what order would I read Hiroshima Revisited and Death Object in? You know, I would probably read Hiroshima Revisited first and then go into Death Object, right? Because the books were written, um, I believe Hiroshima Revisited was written after. So he references some of Dr. Nakatani's work. And uh, it is, yeah, these are without a doubt the gold standard as far as research into this topic goes. And so if you are, if your curiosity is piqued by this essay, if you are wanting and wishing to explore this topic even further, then I highly, highly recommend uh, picking up one or two of those books. And uh, they are free, there's free PDF copies that the authors have uh, put out online. So, very affordable, very accessible, and really, I you know can't recommend them highly enough. It's uh, it is a fascinating exploration of you know one of the greatest hoaxes of the 20th century. It's hard to you know there's so many great hoaxes during the 20th century, so it's hard to pick out one. But <laughs> this is definitely up there. And so, uh, as always, I'm you know I'm so terrible with self promotion, so. As always, if you are listening and you have not subscribed to Dispatches from Reality yet, I encourage you, go to the Substack, uh, subscribe. All these essays are free. All, these, all this information, all the books, the videos cited are all embedded in these articles. I mean, it's really a... If you want to get a college course on conspiracies and the true history of our, of our planet, the true history of, you know, science and so many other topics. Go to Dispatches from Reality at Substack, and that's dfreality.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, I will be narrating my June 13th, 2023 article, The Coincidence Zone, Atomic Edition, Part 1. Quote, For the first time in the history of mankind, one generation literally has the power to destroy the past, the present, and the future. The power to bring time to an end. Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey, Freemason. End quote. For 80 long years, mankind has harnessed the primordial forces of the universe. We have finally acquired the power of the gods, nuclear fission, the very power of the sun or the Big Bang capable of annihilating all sentient life with the flip of a mere switch. Military budgets have exploded in the aftermath of the fateful days of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
with ever more complex defensive systems necessary to stave off the latest innovation in mass genocide. Even now, with the reality of World War III on the horizon, the ever-present threat of nuclear Armageddon hangs over the world like the mythical sword of Damocles. One false move, and humanity will cease to exist. For nearly 80 years now, the world has been held hostage by nuclear terror. The specter of thermonuclear war and the resultant annihilation of all life on Earth has been inexorably imprinted upon humanity's collective psyche. Whether it's through government programming, TV shows, comics, movies, video games, or books, the ever-looming threat of our instant and utter destruction has been used by generations of military planners to justify their ever-increasing budgets. Wars have been fought, and countless victims have died, to prevent this apocalyptic technology from falling into the hands of madmen. That's the story, anyways. We are ruled by dark magicians, illusionists with centuries of practice at dazzling their audience with cheap tricks and flashy stories. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that the intergenerational mafioso clans running our governments are willing to tell grand lies, grander perhaps than most of us care to appreciate. The COVID PSYOP was not their first mass ritual in this mold, and as I've dug deeper and deeper into the fetid morass of state crimes perpetrated against the American people, two questions have forever embedded themselves in my mind. What else have they lied to us about, and how deep do the lies go? If they can lock down society over the common cold, if they can convince 70% of the populace in a matter of weeks that confining themselves to house arrest for months on end was a necessary evil, what are they not capable of pulling off? Like, say, getting generations of schoolchildren to hide under their desks on a weekly basis and utter fear for their lives from a non-existent threat. To this day, most of our neighbors would argue that what occurred in 1945 and 2020 was a necessity to literally save the planet. Those of us who witnessed what occurred during the ongoing COVID PSYOP and yet stood tall can never forget the pervasive ability or fear to override people's ability to rationally think or judge information critically. In the hands of a psychopath, this incredibly potent psychological weapon can be relied upon to shape humanity at their whim. Terror has been used by the mystery religion for millennia to enforce mass compliance upon the populace. For decades, if not centuries, mankind has been unwittingly exposed to a series of mass occult rituals, elaborate psychodramas designed to rob us of our rational faculties and agency. These dark baptisms are an initiation, an alchemical sifting of humanity, an essential step to usher the collective masses into the next epoch of our spiritual and metaphysical journey. Each successive ritual ensconces humanity deeper into the web of occult deception, further devolving the unwitting masses into beasts of mindless burden, forever a slave to their passions and emotions. In the nuclear age is perhaps the most devastatingly effective mass ritual conducted to date, not only for its potency, but also for its sheer longevity. I've discussed the whys, the hows, and the methods of this Luciferian madness in previous articles in the Coincidence Zone series. See the links above. So I will not belabor some of the finer details of that process in this essay. Suffice it to say, the dark sorcery of societal control is down to an exact science. And the sooner we recognize that fact, the better. While the occult symbolism embedded into the Trinity test and subsequent atomic rituals is staggering in its own right, there are numerous substantive issues with the official story of both nuclear weapons and their usage in Japan. The first and most glaring contradiction 
is the pattern and amount of radioactive material produced, a pattern which does not conform with a singular blast of plutonium-based weaponry. The physical evidence suggests an intentional release of a nuclear waste or the usage of dirty bombs, an explosive device designed to contaminate a large area with unrefined radiological waste. Additionally, the scientific literature on nuclear fallout and radioactive isotopes describe materials that are extraordinarily lethal and highly carcinogenic. Yet, the Trinity test site is now a tourist attraction, and Bikini Atoll is a thriving vacation spot. Neither Hiroshima nor Nagasaki are irradiated wastelands. Already, their fear-mongering stories don't withstand the slightest critical scrutiny. Secondly, while there are cases of what could be deemed radiation sickness, quote-unquote, there are a number of irreconcilable issues with the admittedly sparse medical literature. A number of victims, particularly those within 0.5 miles of ground zero, were exposed to theoretically lethal radiation levels, yet they remained totally unharmed. This is acknowledged in medical reports by Army physicians Otterson and Warren, who would admit it is difficult to explain the complete absence of radiation effects in people who were theoretically exposed to lethal dosages of radiation. End quote. If by difficult they mean it is strictly impossible, then yes, it would be quite difficult to reconcile this fact alone with the official narrative of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These hyper lethal radiation levels were supposedly only released during the instant of detonation. Nevertheless, a significant percentage of the victims who died of radiation sickness, quote-unquote, contracted it only after entering the bombed-out city. This fact alone blows the myth of fat man and little boy apart. The reality is that every single wound pattern in the medical literature can be explained by the usage of both mustard gas and napalm. Both have been shown to induce genetic damage, and the U.S. had a copious supply of each compound. Thirdly, firebombing terror campaigns had already decimated 67 Japanese cities, including both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The destruction witnessed in these two cities, while horrific, is really no different than that seen in many other European or Japanese cities. As the photographic evidence makes clear, Researchers at Cornell have noted this as well, stating that, quote, the destructiveness and lethality of nuclear mass fire often, and predictably, greatly exceeds that of nuclear blast, end quote. General Shunroku Hata, the former Japanese minister of war who was stationed near Hiroshima and witnessed the aftermath, remarked that, quote, in his view, the atomic bomb was not that powerful a weapon, end quote. The photos of Ground Zero back this up, and in particular, destroys much of the mythology surrounding the supposedly world-ending capabilities of the bomb. There are thousands of survivors within the blast radius, which should have been instantly killed from the air pressure alone. How did so many victims, most famously a convent of eight Jesuit priests, manage to survive within a blast zone that should have instantly vaporized them? war bathe them in life-ending radiation. Quote, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. J. Robert Oppenheimer. End quote. As with all mass rituals, the confluence of symbols and numerology reveal its purpose and intent. The Trinity test and subsequent nuclear rituals are awash in invocations to the Hindu gods in particular. The name itself, Trinity, is a symbol imbued with a deep occult significance. Christ and the Holy Spirit were with the Father from the beginning of creation. As such, Lucifer has forever attempted to defile the Holy Trinity to his occult ones. We see pagan Trinitarian godheads in many world religions for this reason, such as the Greek Hecate. Hinduism has two major trinities, the female Tridevi and the male Trimurti. Both of these trinities contain a deity that is the arbiter of destruction, Kali and Shiva respectively. 
Shiva the Destroyer, a symbolic representation of the sun god, makes numerous appearances and is alluded to by the practitioners of this ritual repeatedly, such as Oppenheimer's infamous quote seen above. Before the alleged Trinity test, a different test was performed at Alamogordo, colloquially called the 100-ton test. In actuality, the test used 108 tons of TNT, a very intentional obfuscation, as 108 is an extraordinarily important number within Hinduism and Eastern philosophies. Shiva and Krishna are both attended by 108 servants. Shiva has 108 names. Vishnu has 108 temples built in his honor. The Sudarshana Chakra has 108 serrated edges. The Malas prayer bracelets of Hinduism have 108 beads for this reason. Although that number is seen in many Eastern religions, such as the number of steps in Buddhist temples. In yoga, 108 is the number of spiritual completion. In the Western world, 108 has great occult significance as well. The numbers 10 and 8, or aces and 8s, is known as the dead man's hand. In Copernican cosmology, the distance from the earth to the sun, roughly 93 million miles, is said to be 108 times the circumference of the sun. The pentagram consists of five angles, each of which is measured at 108 degrees. Now, precisely 21 days after the Trinity test, Hiroshima was bombed. In occult numerology, 21 is the number of success and completion, yet another invocation of this kind. In Terot, the last major arcana is 21, the world, the symbolic representation of the goddess. And of course, 23, the number of bombs dropped at Bikini Atoll, is a number steeped in esoteric symbology. Even the shape of the nuclear payload itself has a symbolic significance. The payload was in the shape of a dodecahedron, a 12-sided solid with pentagons for its faces. It is one of the five perfect divisions of the sphere, the other four being the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, and the icosahedron. The dodecahedron was viewed by the practitioners of the mystery rites of Babylon as the symbolic form of the ether, or the quintessence, the mystical essence of creation. Unlike the other four platonic solids, the fifth symbol was a closely guarded secret by the Pythagorean cults for centuries. The number five itself is heavily laden with occult and numerological symbolism, as it is the representation of both Ishtar and Venus. As with so many other major historical events this century, the Trinity ritual is not just a wash with occult symbolism, but it is a specific invocation to specific spiritual forces. In this case, the destroyer god, the sun god, success, and the primordial forces of creation. The psychological priming of the populace is a critical aspect of these mass rituals, as well, most commonly called, revelation of the method or predictive programming. Therefore, the nuclear bomb's genesis in fictional works should come as no surprise to those who have read previous entries in this series, or to those familiar with the modus operandi of our criminal overlords. The first documented appearance of what could be construed as an atomic weapon or nuclear device is seen in H.G. Wells' 1895 book, The Time Machine. Wells would later coin the term atom bomb in his 1914 book, The World Set Free. In his book, Wells describes a device that once detonated would start an uncontrollable and never-ending chain reaction. The 1936 film, The Shape of Things to Come, based on a Wells novel, would famously include these weapons being launched via aerial bombardment. His books would seemingly predict many technologies that exist today, such as direct energy weapons, cell phones, and TVs. The technological prophet of the future is a character that the mystery religion has deployed to staggering effectiveness the past century. Look no further than Elon Musk, for an example of a modern fulfillment of this archetype. 
While the mainstream hails H.G. Wells as a visionary figure, his history is an exceedingly dark one, and typical for those loved by this world. His membership in one of the most infamous secret societies in history, his vocal support of the New World Order, and his infatuation with the occult says all we need to know about the true allegiances of this man. How much of H.G. Wells' predictions, quote-unquote, were merely predictive programming? We know these rituals are planned decades in advance. It was no accident that the Twin Towers were constructed 33 years before their fateful demise. And it was no accident that Wells would continually presage the very thing his masters would later unleash on humanity. If the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the Mighty One. Bhagavad Gita 11.12 End quote. Photographing and recording the first apocalyptic outburst was apparently an exceedingly difficult task. NPR details the lengths that government scientists went to record the Trinity test. Quote, the dangers of shockwaves and radiation required the camera to be placed seven miles from the detonation site on a tower some 75 feet in the air. Exposure time was one hundredth millionth of a second. The exposure time was so small that no conventional mechanical shutter could be used. A magnetic field was created around two polarized lens that were rotated, permitting light to pass through an optical system. The incongruities with this story and future tests such as Ivy Mike or Bikini Atoll, notwithstanding, the lengths that the Manhattan Project engineers went to shield their equipment does not jive with the shoddy safety measures seen below. Radiation is simultaneously a powerful force that can mar film or destroy electrical equipment, but it's not dangerous enough to protect yourself from? For all the care taken to capture this historic event, you'd think they would bother explaining the wild incongruities between the pictures of that same event seen below. Pictured is the Trinity Test, the first seconds of the Atomic Age. Next, we have two pictures of Oppenheimer and General Graves near the base of the tower used to hold the gadget device. And then next, we have an aerial view and a ground view of the same alleged blast site, also from the National Archives. Again. Note the complete lack of protective gear in any of these pictures. Firstly, the most obvious issue is that these pictures, all obtained from the National Archives, look absolutely nothing alike, and the regime doesn't even care to hide or explain that fact. Secondly, the protective gear here is legitimately laughable. Radioisotopes, a primary nuclear threat to humanity, would still have been present, and little white booties aren't going to help you against them. As the records make clear, it's not that American scientists were unaware of these dangers. So why such cavalier attitudes by the Manhattan engineers? Perhaps they know something we simply don't. Like, say, the atomic sleight of hand charade being perpetrated here. A nuclear bomb with a payload of 25,000 tons of TNT supposedly just exploded a mere 30 meters above the point that these men are standing. According to their literature and fear-mongering propaganda, we should expect to see a gigantic crater, easily hundreds of meters in depth and width. The nuclear fireball of the gadget device was roughly 600 feet in diameter, much larger than the photographs depicted as, which should have resulted in a very deep crater. Windows 120 miles away were allegedly shattered by the blast, these dirt piles above are pitiful. My tractor has done more damage to the dirt than their alleged doomsday weapons, quote-unquote. And as for the rebar seen in pictures two and three above, how can a rebar withstand temperatures of 560,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the alleged temperature of the nuclear fireball captured above? Does that sand look like molten glass or Shard beyond recognition to you? Don't ask questions, peon. Just duck in cover. Every single piece of footage depicting a nuclear blast that has ever been seen by the American public was processed inside Lookout Mountain Studios, 
a location with its own sordid history. Lookout Mountain was the world's first completely self-contained movie studio, as Dave McGowan details in his groundbreaking book. Quote, Over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures, more than all the Hollywood studios combined, which I guess makes Laurel Canyon the real motion picture capital of the world. Officially, the facility was run by the U.S. Air Force and did nothing more nefarious than process AEC footage of atomic and nuclear bomb tests. The studio, however, was clearly equipped to do far more than just process film. There are indications that Lookout Mountain Laboratory had an advanced research and development department that was on the cutting edge of new film technologies. Such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site. And Hollywood luminaries like John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, and Marilyn Monroe were given clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. There is no indication that any of them ever spoke of their work at the clandestine studio. From Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, end quote. The sheer volume of films turned out at this studio is simply staggering, and the list of Lookout Mountain's Hollywood collaborators is indeed stored. If the government was so inclined to fabricate or doctor footage of nuclear tests, this facility sure does sound like the perfect place to pull that off. A feat, mind you, that would have been more than possible to pull off with 40s and 50s technology. Director Christopher Nolan has just recently demonstrated this for us, with his recreation, via practical effects, of the Trinity explosion for his upcoming film, Oppenheimer. Lookout Mountain's pioneering technological advances were then laundered through Disney and other studios to obscure their origin, much like NQTEL and Google Earth, or DARPA and LifeLog slash Facebook. I can see how people from the 1950s fell for this garbage scene above. Now, they had never witnessed modern special effects before these movies, or I mean test footage. <laughs> As for those of us today, we have much less of an excuse. The most ubiquitous myth surrounding nuclear weapons and nuclear fallout is that of its longevity and lethality. This has been the primary excuse on why such weapons can never be used again, lest we waste away the earth in a toxic haze of irradiated dust. Here's what Wikipedia has to say about the topic of nuclear fallout. Quote, Fallout comes in two varieties. The first is a small amount of carcinogenic material with a long half-life. The second, depending on the height of detonation, is a large quantity of radioactive dust and sand with a short half-life. All nuclear explosions produce fission products, unfissioned nuclear material and weapon residue vaporized by the heat of the fireball. These materials are limited to the original mass of the device, but include radioisotopes with long lives. When the nuclear fireball does not reach the ground, this is the only fallout produced. End quote. The Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were detonated about 200 meters above ground. Therefore, the only fallout produced should have been radioisotopes. We will find this is not the case in Part 2. But these isotopes are what theoretically pose the greatest threat to human life. What do we know about their degradation? Apparently, not much. Quote, Radioactive decay is a random process at the level of single atoms. It is impossible to predict when one particular atom will decay. The range of the half-lives of radioactive atoms has no known limits. From Wikipedia. End quote. Plutonium-239, the primary fissile material used in nuclear weapons, supposedly has a half-life of 24,110 years. And yet, according to the EPA, a very little radioactivity from weapons testing in the 1950s and 1960s can still be detected in the environment now. End quote. This lack of fallout and long-term damage is evident at both Bikini Atoll and the Trinity test site. 
locations that were bathed in significantly more nuclear radiation than Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Areas that theoretically should have been uninhabitable for millennia are thriving ecosystems and tourist attractions. Even the New York Times reported on this odd fact several decades ago. Quote, After the 23 nuclear explosions that the United States conducted on this remote coral atoll in the 1940s and 50s, one almost expects to visit today and find just a few shard islets surrounded by brackish water emitting an eerie glow. So the amazing thing about Bikini is how alive it is. A white sand island full of coconut palms swaying over a perfect turquoise sea. Fish and sea turtles swimming luxuriously by the beach. There are also a few tourists, and many more are expected, because Bikini is now once more open to the public. From the New York Times, March 5th, 1997. End quote. This also raises the question of why no trinitite-like substance can be found at Bikini Atoll. Trinitite is a kind of glass, supposedly created by the high heat and pressure of a nuclear blast. Once sold as jewelry, its export from Almagordo has been outlawed. While an interesting novelty, its non-existence at one of the most nuked locations in the world begs the question of whether this substance is simply another shiny trinket in order to hoodwink a gullible public. These facts leave us only two options in regards to the truth of nuclear fallout, neither of which are mutually exclusive. Either these tests were staged, or nuclear fallout and radiation is nowhere near as dangerous as we have been sold. Pictured above is a thriving ecosystem from Bikini Atoll, and then below, the Trinity Test Site Monument at Alamogordo, New Mexico. Naturally, it is a black obelisk, a symbol revered by occultists of every epoch. Quote, the atomic bomb certainly is the most powerful of all weapons, but it is conclusively powerful and effective only in the hand of the nation which controls the sky. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, Freemason. End quote. Before we delve into the anomalous physical evidence of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Part 2, perhaps the most glaring issue with the nuclear scam must be addressed. That issue is the fact that no nuclear weapons have ever been used in combat again, either by state actors or rogue groups. Much like the alleged moon landings, this admittedly incredible technology has been essentially mothballed, never to be used again. This simply defies logic, as no other legitimate technological advancement has ever worked like that in human history. The first precept of actual science is repeatability. The federal government has made reproducing or transmitting technical plans of functioning nuclear devices a felony, laws which can only stop the curious from exposing the farce of nuclear Armageddon. Less than 50 years after the first manned flight, Chuck Yeager was breaking the sound barrier. The first TV cost thousands of today's dollars. In less than 50 years, they would become so cheap you could put one in every room. Yet for some inexplicable reason, two of the most miraculous quote-unquote inventions in human history were never to be replicated again. Taylor Wilson built a functioning fusion generator in his garage at just 14 years old. But somehow, entire teams of Iranian scientists haven't figured out how to weaponize theirs. A mutually assured destruction does nothing to explain why these weapons have not been used in, say, Vietnam, Iraq, or Korea. From 2003 to 2006, the Iraq War consumed anywhere from 655,000 to a million Iraqi lives, the vast majority of which were innocent civilians. Approximately 7,662,000 tons of explosives were dropped on Vietnam in the course of that war. The lingering after-effects of dioxin and depleted uranium ammo still haunts these places, 
Well, Bikini Atoll is a paradise. So let me get this straight. Burning at least 100,000 Tokyo citizens alive was totally kosher. But nuking, quote-unquote, and instantly, quote-unquote, killing 60 to 70,000 people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was the bridge too far for these folks? Neutron bombs are said to be able to release only lethal radiation, theoretically capable of wiping out armies and moments without even destroying buildings. They are basically a weapon with no downsides. If the regime could end wars with a few bombs, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they use these tools if they actually had them at their disposal? The people who drone children or bomb wedding processions suddenly grew a conscience? What limiting principles have these monsters ever shown in regards to violence and mayhem? No. As the evidence demonstrably shows, that these devices have not been used again because uncontrollable nuclear explosions are quite simply put, a thing of fiction. Quote, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 33rd degree Freemason. End quote. <laughs>